We'll turn with me real quick to the book of Acts chapter 2. Today it's going to be a little bit different uh, series. Normally we go into a book and we exposit, we explain the passage and find our hope. And faith is strengthened from that. And I like to take breaks once in a while for the purpose of the edification of our church so that we can learn uh, some different doctrines and truths. And today we're going to start a series on the church. I find that this would be helpful to us, especially as such a young church. If we can all unify what we believe and, and clarify what we believe, it'll help us as we grow and go forward and as we add new people into the church. So that's kind of our goal for the next few weeks. So we won't necessarily be expositing one particular passage, but we're going to be looking topically at the concept of the church. And this series really is on what is the purpose of the church. And when you ask this particular question to somebody, it's interesting the answer that you get. I always love to go to Google because she has such wonderful answers for me. I don't know why she's a female, but to me she is. And when Google answers my questions, I find that there is some good, helpful information there. Of course, I did a research on this and found all kinds of interesting answers. And we did it in today's class. I asked Historically, what have you understood to be the purpose of the church? And I would say from everyone in this room that I've, uh, I fairly know everyone in here pretty well. And I'd say I know most of your backgrounds pretty well. And I would say I'd understand what your understanding of the church can be. And it comes from a broad range, from a seeker-sensitive church all the way to uh, a Baptistic or even Catholic backgrounds uh, of some of you in here. So the purpose of the church Well, it's hard to, as a church, function as a church, as an individual, if you don't understand the purpose of the church. So we have to decide to what are we attaching ourselves to and why are we doing that. Some have been coming to church for years because as a good Christian, this is what you do. Once you believe, you're baptized, and what's the next thing you do? You become a church member. And even those of you that serve, or those of us that serve in the church, we serve because that's what good church members do. And there's all kinds of motivations that are out there as to why, and we'll get into that today. I would say the foundation, just so we understand where we're going to be going in this series, I would say the foundation of our church is really centered on, I think, the early church. And we don't take everything, we're not completely a copycat of the early church, because there's a lot of... Uh, cultural aspects that prevent us from doing that, but the heart of it, very much so. And so in Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That was the focus of the New Testament church. And the question is, what was the purpose of focusing their attention on these particular traditions, these particular actions? And that's the question that we're going to be looking at today. Now before I believe we can truly build a solid foundation, we must first, I think, remove any weak or potential damaging ideas and material that have formed the structure of the purpose of our church historically. So this morning, this is what we will do from a biblical perspective. We're going to try and look at the Bible and from the Bible maybe deconstruct some ideas. And then over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to reconstruct what the purpose of the church can do. So if we can first see the problem with many of the philosophies that surround the church today, we know that we must leave some of this behind and bring on what is acceptable as far as biblically teaching and build this particular context, our church, on Christ's commands as far as the church. 
Now, there is a lot of popular influence into the modern church, and I would say this church here has even been influenced by a lot of modern teaching. So what we're going to do is kind of work through what I would say the most three most influential um, aspects that have that have changed the dynamic of the church from what it was in Acts 2.42 to what it is today. And I think if you're able to identify them, then we can say, well, that's probably why we should leave that out, or that's why we don't focus it this way. Because for those of you that have been coming for the last six months to a year, probably would say CBC is, of course, not extraordinarily different, uh, but it is different than probably the normal, typical evangelical church that's out there no matter what denomination or what flavor you come from it is a little bit different and there's a reason why it's different and so let's we're going to go through and look at this for the most part uh first i would say the most popular influence in the purpose of the church and what drives the church over the last 25 years comes through what i would say is the um most of us have probably heard this phrase the seeker-sensitive or the seeker-friendly style church. Um, most probably, you probably, most of you have heard of the man Rick Warren or Bill Hybels. Uh, some of you probably have even been in a church that uh, emphasizes uh, what we would say the Hybels style or the Warren style of teaching. The Purpose Driven Church was a very popular book that influenced uh, the modern evangelical church for many, many, many years. And the primary mission of the church, according to this model, is to attract unbelievers into the church with the hopes that they will believe the gospel. Now, let me go up and say right from the beginning, I am all for gospel ministry. I'm all for presenting the gospel and bringing unbelievers in. A lot of the men and women's Bible studies that we have here are very much designed so that you can invite your friends and coworkers to come and hear the gospel. Uh, so there's, there's, I have nothing wrong as far as trying to get unbelievers to hear the gospel. But the problem is that this particular model is lacking, so what I would say, some strong foundational parts of, like, for instance, the whole purpose of the church, right? And the dynamic of the church changed. So what ends up driving this type of a model of a church or the purpose of this church is what I would say is pragmatism. Whatever seems to be working at the time, use it. And I'm sure some of you have seen or experienced and have participated in some wild activities as it relates to getting people into church. I, for one, when I was in college, we would do all kinds of crazy things. We would go into the lower income housing areas and we'd take buses out there and we would bribe kids with all kinds of craziness, convincing them that we would, you know, swallow goldfish or giving them pumpkins we would give away xboxes and we'd give away all kinds of stuff just to get them onto the bus so we could get them to the church and listen for good reasons they wanted these kids to hear the gospel and they truly did preach the gospel um, as far as faith in jesus christ but again that became the model of church it was all about how do we stuff the pews so that more people can come and over time as this model grows if the lost are not engaging in the church, then what must they do? They must adjust so that they can engage, or the unbeliever. So children's ministries are the focus, really, in the suburban areas. If you have a strong, vibrant children's ministry, it will draw in the parents, what I would call free childcare. Or for the hipster, it's kind of the coffee shop mentality, right? You can have this low-key 
coffee-style church, and so it's kind of like the downtown feel. And for the collegiate world, it's really about the small intimacy. The, 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 it's either small groups or how is it you're going to be doing outreach to the homeless and to the needy. And that becomes the emphasis and the focus of the church in this sensor, uh, seeker-sensitive attraction model. But if you're attracting unbelievers and want them to stay in the church, then you must preach sermons that keep them there or that relate to them. So just stop for a moment and think to yourself, if you're attracting people who are not followers of Christ to sit in the seats and you want them to stay there, they, according to what we understand of Scripture, are blind, deaf, and dumb. They need the gospel to bring them to life. But what ends up happening in these sermons is the gospel is offensive, right? The gospel causes someone to see who they really are. It's the mirror that reflects the, 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 the disgustingness of who they are. So then you get sermons that are more about self-improvement. So the gospel is what is kind of some semi-tacked on at the end, but really becomes more about the self-improvement. You need Jesus Christ. You need to give your life to Christ and have faith in Christ so that, and then it's, it's the application of self-improvement. So the primary emphasis is about straightening out one's life, how to get all this mess that you've made, how to make it better. Or for those people who have shown up well, uh, they're, they're performing well, it's how to be more effective than you are now. And in this model, music styles and lyrics, even the way in which the pastor dresses, styles of the building, are all geared towards the seeker, right? So all of a sudden, church throughout history, (laughs) their music has been very uh, conservative and it's very Christ-centered and it's very much uh, congregational, trying to get the congregation involved in deep, rich theology, which you'll notice we sing a lot of hymns here. We're not anti-new songs, but as long as those new songs are leading us in the same direction that the hymns are. But in modern context, it's much more of a light show. It's much more of a concert. And we, there's been some dis- distractions there. Here's a quote from, from, from uh, Warren's book. He says, Once you know the target, or the unbelievers, it will determine many of the components of your secret service. Music style, message topics, creative arts, and more. So he goes, okay, here's my target. I want more of these people in the pews. So now I know that I know what my target is. I'm going to adjust the styles for it. So pastors spend their time taking surveys and looking at the culture to determine the focus and the direction of the church. This is why a lot of pastors will spend time and they will do overviews of movies for their sermons. And they'll try and make Christian practical applications. So instead of trusting in the preaching of God's word, we're going to do something about you know whatever the popular movie of the day is. I'm not going to quote any and get myself in trouble. He goes on to say, it's my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. Fascinating, right? The most likely place to start is with the person's felt needs. Well, there's a reason why there's so much giveaways and extravagant and, and music and emotion because you're trying to meet the needs of those people. Well, I know what they need, but they don't know that they need that. So what ends up happening is instead of holding to the humility of preaching the gospel, because preaching the gospel is a very humiliating moment. It's not something that's glorious. It's not something that to be patted on the back. As a matter of fact, you're laughed at and scoffed at. Instead of doing that, I'm going to try and word things in such a way that you are enamored by it and you are comforted by it and you feel 
that it's going to help you be a better person. You know, really my responsibility every week is to just to remind you how horrible you are. That really is my job. Because you will not rest on Christ unless you see the need for it. So there are times I stand up here and I go, well, I I know I can do this because I am a horrible person and I know they're not any better than I am because we're looking through the lens of Christ and we're not looking at each other. So really I see my job as just putting you into despair as much as I can. But in a seeker-sensitive context, they don't want to do that. They want to draw them in. They don't want to offend them. They want to bring them in. So the purpose of the church is really lost. This is I cannot prove this, but this, in my opinion, is why men like Joel Osteen have become so popular and have done so well is that for many, many, many years now, Rick Warren's influence on the church has changed the model of it. So you have a watering down of the gospel over time to meet the felt needs of people, and then, uh, and then Joel Osteen can step in and just flat out teach a prosperity gospel. Do this and God prospers you. Right, which is very different from the seeker-sensitive model, but I think it's popular because it's taking the concept and just making it more um, acceptable in the eyes of the... This is why Osteen, in public television, says, I just don't talk about sin because he doesn't think there needs to be that. He needs to be there. He's kind of a life coach is the way he describes himself. Well, I don't think that... um, Everybody's at the extreme of Osteen. I'm not saying that. But the seeker-sensitive model has definitely influenced the church at large because we do see contexts where we want to bring down the authority of Scripture when we bring down the heavy teaching of theology. See, I, I grew up hearing phrases like theology divides, right? Christ unites. So let's just emphasize the goodness of Jesus Christ. Do not talk about theology because that's just going to cause division. Well, how is it that you can talk about Christ without talking about theology. It doesn't make any sense to me. But what ends up happening is that because we want to pack the pews as full as we can, we need to make sure that we keep away anything that would cause friction or division. So many, even today, as I was, I look at a lot of, when we decided to do the church plant down here, I wanted to see the kind of styles of churches that are around here. And there are some who absolutely advertise on their website that we are a seeker-friendly church. So immediately, if you've been around Christianity at all for the last 25, 30 years, you know what that means. You know what seeker-friendly means, and it's a style of church. And the purpose of the church is to try and reach the lost in the church. It's not necessarily designed to grow the church. Now, of course, after 25 years, there are men, like even Hybels, who go, wait, well, I think we've missed something. We have a lot of weak, uneducated, uh, whining Christians who want more to their Christianity. And so they basically said, well, the responsibility of the church is to help the lost, and it's your responsibility to educate and grow yourself. That was their conclusion after their survey. So, of course, that blew up in their face, and a lot of people ended up leaving those contexts. Now, while, again, I applaud the enthusiasm to reach the lost, I think the damage that this movement has caused is pretty catastrophic. There's been a lot of confusion. Millions of people over the last 30 years have had the gospel marketed to them. And it becomes a marketing scheme instead of a hope uh, for a desperate need. So instead of being treated as a lost sinner, leading, being led to the balm of Christ in the gospel, they are treated as a consumer, and the church had something for them to buy. So every week they come, and some form of marketing is being given to them. And they are feeling more like 
a consumer than it is someone who's being loved by God. So over time, people will grow tired of the marketing. And I know there's probably some of you in here have been in contexts like this. You're just tired of the constant bombardment of marketing. So they end up leaving church as one of those things they tried, confused by the purpose of the church and the gospel. They're tired of the, the marketing, they're tired of all of these self-help messages that don't work. So they, there is a large mass of people who are intrigued by Catholicism because it seems like it's reverent, it's historic, it seems like there's a, there's a sense of, of, of weightiness to what they're doing. And so there's been this large transition back to Catholicism because at least the Catholic Church is not trying to market anything to anybody. Now, I do believe there are true believers in these styles of churches, and they are starving for the gospel. They just don't know it. And the reason I know this is that there's some people from the seeker-sensitive movements are sitting in here today, and from the podcast I've been contacted, that people, once they hear the real, unfiltered gospel, they literally say, where has this been my entire life? So they've been transformed there's been some at least the core of the gospel has been given to them but as it relates to their everyday life we've talked about this before where there's what we call two uses of the gospel there's that for the transformation of being transformed into the image of god and then that's where most people stop and then for us here at community we believe the gospel is for life every single day it's the way in which it transforms us as well so it's used for regeneration and continued sanctification So, one of the arguments that you kind of hear sometimes when you're dealing with this type of a movement is how do you, how can you criticize churches that are, I mean, clearly this is successful because you have these massive churches who have thousands of people coming and how can you argue with results? Well, you've got to be careful because that is dangerous because if you want to compare ministries then Jesus was highly unsuccessful as far as bringing converts to Jesus, to, to to follow him so numbers do not necessarily equate success or that it's actually right so many of you have either been involved or influenced by this movement and i think a lot of you are shaking your head and i think that there's a part of it, what's so hard is that some of it feels right, evangelism is right, and encouraging the, the witness to the lost, but of course you can feel that there's a weakness, that it's a weak theology, there's not a heavy centered on faith in Christ, and often even more just faithfulness. But there's, uh, uh, there's another one I want to mention to you, and this is the second movement, and what this movement did is it saw the errors of the seeker-sensitive movement, right? All right, okay, this is off. And it's very much focused on the unbeliever, and it's leaving the believer and abandoning them to really waffle and not grow in Christ. So the emphasis becomes on the purpose of the church is now not evangelism of the lost, let's bring the seeker in, but the purpose of the church now is discipleship. So where the seeker-friendly church serves the needs of the unbeliever, in this context, the church serves the needs of the believer, so weekly one-on-one meetings is very uh, a high watermark of the Christian experience here, right? These meetings are designed to examine the Christian's life. Accountability partners is another form of saying this. The purpose to help fight against sin, grow in holiness and effectiveness, and ministry to others. So there's a very strong emphasis on the personal devotional life and prayer life. 
And so once you kind of reach a certain level as a disciple, then you find someone that you're going to disciple, and you just continue the chain down. So each one reach one, or each one disciple one. Some of you probably have heard this kind of language. And what it ends up doing is it creates two kinds of Christianity. You have those who are saved, right? They've said the prayer. They have their fire insurance. And then that's the criticism. It's like, oh, you just said the prayer. But you need to dedicate your life to God. You need to get serious about God or you need to be discipled. And so churches absolutely will advertise themselves as a disciple-making or heavy emphasis on discipleship. And typically, these churches are very solid theologically. They, they do focus in on a good, solid foundation as far as historic doctrine and, and going through and, and reading and expositing, and expositing the passages. But what ends up happening in this particular context is sermons are geared towards motivating the disciple to a greater and greater faithfulness. So you can even exposit a passage that is about the glory of Christ... And somehow it's turned into you being dedicated as a disciple to the glory of Christ. So it becomes all about the faithfulness of the disciple. So it's self-examination is the key model. Every passage is a self-examination to your discipleship. Are you truly being discipled? And I would say in this context as well, as we have mentioned multiple times before, it's a confusion between the law what's required of us, and the gospel. So when Jesus says all of these passages is about discipleship, right? unless you forsake money, unless you forsake your family, and follow me completely, you cannot be my disciple. Well, is that gospel? That doesn't sound like good news, because guess what? You have never, in your history of being a Christian, fully dedicated your life to God 100% of the time. It's impossible to do. And thankfully, Paul gives us some relief in that because he said himself, as probably one of the historic, um, publicly well-known disciples, he's like, I can't even do everything that I want to do. And the things I shouldn't be doing, I keep doing those. Who will save me from this? Well, the focus of his faith, which was Christ, O wretched man that I am, Jesus will save me from this body of death. So you have the assurance is found in how well you're being a disciple. That's where the sermons focus themselves. And you end up turning sermons uh, about the Old Testament law into examples of dedication and um, servitude. And assurance is often caused into question because of the level of dedication. So this too has notes appearing biblical. It can absolutely feel and sound biblical. Even more biblical than I would say the seeker sensitive because it's very clear there is the concept of discipleship in the Bible. It's there. It's like, yeah, I mean, I can see that. But here's what's interesting, and we're going to spend time later in the series examining what does it mean to be a church member, the purpose of the church, and where does discipleship play out in the concept of the purpose of the church? I will tell you this. The Bible does not give us the concept of a believer, someone who's come to faith, and then there's the next step, which is a disciple. As a matter of fact, the, trying to approach the word discipleship as a verb is not even correct, theologically speaking. It's just another synonym for a believer. If you 
follow Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. If you are believing in him by faith alone, you are a disciple. It's, this, it's one and the same. And we're going we're gonna to walk through scripture and see this. That it's very dangerous to say, well, there are those who are in the church. So we have pew sitters. And then there are those who are the disciples. And those are the people who are reading in Bible every, you know, every 45 minutes every day. And they've got a one-on-one discipleship program going on. And they meet with somebody in a coffee shop. And then they're working to meet with somebody and blah, 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 blah. And then the phrase becomes, well, who's discipling you? Well, uh, I'm being discipled by Andy Skates. So <laughs> check that out. You know, he's been a Christian for 27 years. That's the danger of that kind of a model. Um, let's see. Let me jump to, um, let's go ahead and jump to. So there's a third, there's a third one. Um, yeah, I, okay, so here's a, there's a con, and it's, I think it's helpful for you to understand because me, me criticizing discipleship is dangerous because then someone say, well, isn't discipleship important? Yes. But just like the current model of seeker-sensitive, the emphasis is on the unbeliever, the emphasis on discipleship, what I would say the error in this is that it's very individualized. Meaning, when you show up and you sit down in the pew, you are there to make sure that you are working on you. So that you become a better follower of Jesus Christ. So the emphasis is very individualized. It's very focused in on me. And how do I make me better? How do I make me more improved? And the danger in that is that it, you, can become, you can sit in a congregation of people you're supposed to be connected to and not have any connection to them at all. And why? Because, again, it's all about me and my personal discipleship and my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And motivation is internal and focused on oneself and not the body at large. And I will say the danger of this model, and I have seen it, is judgmentalism. Because are you as dedicated as a disciple as I am? Have you spent as much time as I have? And we, become, we create these rules or these high watermarks of this is what a real discipleship looks like he dresses like this he sounds like this he does this he he does this with his money and and again it goes down the line and we can use scripture to try and even manipulate that but the emphasis is on faithfulness what we are doing for god and not faith and and absolutely kind of fractures any kind of unity i think within the church so in these two contexts, a Christian does not come to church to be refreshed in the gospel, to have fellowship with Christ and, and believers and to feed on Christ as we saw in Acts 2.42. So, so let's go back, right? The foundation is the emphasis on dedicating themselves to the teaching of God's word, fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayer. And these models, those things exist, but it's not the emphasis or it's not their purpose. Purpose over here is to get as many lost people as we can. Purpose over here is to individually grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. In this context of the uh, discipleship uh, series or discipleship model, sermons are driven by guilt and fear. Christians in this context rarely hear of what's being done for them. In, in some ways it's assumed. You've already been at the starting point. The gospel is the starting point. And now it's focusing on how you can be more acceptable or you can be a better disciple and make other people better disciples. I would say this model is most popular in the conservative churches and even some of what I would say the Calvinistic or semi-reformed churches where the emphasis is very much on uh, pietism, 
just to uh, use it and explain this again, if you don't know the difference between piety and pietism. I am for piety. This is seeing the glory of God, seeing our transformation as being adopted, and reflecting this glory, and obeying, and loving, and, and, and pursuing Christ, and pursuing holiness, because of the love that we have. That's piety. This is good. Pietism is taking that same obedience and performance and saying, unless I perform, unless I do well, God will not be accepting of me and God will not bless me. And so we perform to receive acceptance, ability from God and instead of the opposite. So I would say the discipleship model is very much driven by a pietism, a piety, pietistic worldview. So we have seeker-friendly focus on the unbelievers. Discipleship model focuses on the individual needs of the believer almost to the exclusion of the church, where the church is not that important. And then there is a final one that I want to mention. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do think it's worth mentioning. It's what we call the radical movement. This movement was and is being made popular by a particular young man by the name of David Platt and his book called Radical. I don't know if anybody here has heard it or read it. And then he has a second book that kind of followed up to it because he did receive some criticisms. And the book is called Radical Together. And I believe that this movement is a reaction to the previous two that I just mentioned to you. So he rightfully sees the seeker sensitive is wrong. He also sees over here, because what you have over here is a pure focus is on the unbeliever to the exclusion of the believer. In the discipleship model, you do have a pure individualized message almost to the exclusion of evangelism where it's really all focused in on the personal growth of the individual to the exclusion of evangelism so Platt comes in and says both of these are off there needs to be um, a focus back in on the radical disciple who is evangelizing (laughs) so he kind of takes the two mixes them together and really talks about and and this is again this is the danger of not understanding the difference between the law and the gospel he'll take passages about jesus saying forsake all of your wealth forsake your family and you need to go out into the world and reach the gospel reach people with the gospel and so it is taking it's a real it's really an attack on the christian american world so Christians are lazy, they love their money, they love their entertainment, they love, they love comfortability. And what he says is that the call for the believer is to live sacrificially, to abandon any kind of comfort, comfortability, and to live radical for the sake of Christ until he returns. And the, there, there's, a, there's a lot to be commended by Platt. He says a lot of things that I think were right, and he, he makes good assessments, but he changes the focus of the church to be primarily about reaching the lost outside of the United States. It's all about focusing in on world mission. And the purpose of the church is world missions. Again, world missions is important. We will talk about this. But this is the call. So to simplify one's life down from all the worldly distractions and wealth, financially putting yourself in a position where you can give more to the church so that the church can reach the lost. And so again, you're going to hear things about being attacked from consumerism or any kind of comfortability or having nice stuff or having Netflix or entertainment or TV or anything like that. Now, the true radical Christian will sell, in his opinion, will sell everything they have 
and move to a third world country and share the gospel. And if they can't do that, then they will participate in a church who is focused in on doing this. So the church's finances are really focused in and all the attention is focused in on getting the gospel to, we would say, a third world country, a country that has not heard the gospel. Now, and, there, and, and unfortunately, this does create within Christianity a two-level system. And I experienced this the first time I took a bunch of college students to a conference. Uh, it wasn't named Radical, but it was a missions conference. And the speakers were basically all of these young folks who have no tie-downs, right? They are in college. And so the push is, as soon as you're done with college, you need to go out into the mission field. And that was like the high radical life, the most dedicated life, the most, you know, that's the most, that was the person who is really going to make a mark for God. And if you can't do that, then go be a doctor, go be a teacher, go be a nurse and support the church. And there was that level of, okay, if you're not willing to be the missionary, then okay, at least go get a good job and support it. Which is very dangerous because there isn't the pastor and missionary who is the, the pinnacle of the Christian life. They live the most radical lives. And then those of you that sit out here and that you know, you're not really making those sacrifices, well, you can make a sacrifice, but you're not as significant as those who go into another country. I know for a fact that some of you have felt that, that your life is not significant because you don't, do something every single day to transform the world for Christ. So you feel like your job or being a mom is kind of mundane. And what ends up happening is the ordinary becomes lackadaisical. It becomes less than. It becomes unspiritual. Now this constant call to live radical has created some crushing blows to many who have attempted to live this Uh, to live up to this expectation. I remember the first mission trip I took to Haiti. I met a young couple there. He was a golf instructor. She was um, a therapist. And they read the book. And within two months, they sold everything they had. They rented out their house. And they were in Haiti as missionaries. Massive change of life. Of course, she's pregnant. She has a baby. And now they're in Haiti. And they have this six-month-old. And I show up on the scene. And they have been there probably for eight months at that point, and they are crushed because they are trying to live up to this expectation of living this radical life in Haiti. And she is worried about her six-year-old crawling, who's now crawling. She can't carry around anymore. And she's feeling guilty to spending $30 to buy a mat. And if you've ever been to Haiti, Haiti is filthy and full of germs. She just wants to spend $30 to buy a mat so her daughter has a place to like play. And she's feeling like she, she's taking money from the gospel advancement to make her child feel comfortable. And I immediately pulled out my wallet and I said, here, well, you can have my $30 to buy that mat. And that's insane. And on, they were so um, confused by what does it mean to live for Christ that they ended up leaving that place. They tried it again. To, they tried it again in China. That didn't work. And I recently uh, met up with them in um, Home Depot a couple weeks ago, and it was good to talk with them. But they had they had unfortunately disrupted their entire life and went through a lot of pain and sorrow because they had been confused on what does it mean to live for Christ in a local church. In their mind, the most radical, the most godly, the most best thing they could do was go to another country. And they unfortunately have experienced this. 
uh, as being not helpful. Michael Horton, in his book, he wrote a book in contrast to this, and I think it's very helpful if you want to read it. It's called Ordinary. And in it, he says, everyone is meant to break away from the herd and to become the, a phoenix rising from the ashes. That's kind of like what Christianity is driven towards. So these churches that embrace this radical lifestyle, it's motivating for to become so dedicated that you're supposed to make, make something great of yourself, right? Every sermon is how to become greater. So... From New Testament believers, we look at their life and how dedicated Paul was to missionaries who sacrificed everything, you know, the Nate saints of the world, to biblical, uh, to, to, to Old Testament characters. Well, true biblical church, as we will learn in the coming weeks, can seem mundane and ordinary. If you read it in the context of the believer, it seems plain and simple. Horton goes on to say, facing another day with ordinary callings to ordinary people all around you is so much more difficult than chasing my own dreams that I have envisioned for the grand story of my life. Like all of us want significance. So we think to ourselves, if I chase out my dream, like this, this vision I have for myself, then my life will be greater. But doing what I know I'm responsible for doing day after day after day doesn't seem like that's very radical. He says, in many ways, it's more fun to be part of a movement than churches. We can express our own individuality, pick our favorite leaders, and be swept off our feet at a conference. We can be anonymous, although encouraged by like-minded believers. We are not bound up with them so that we should feel compelled to bear their burdens or suffer their rebukes. Yet this movement mentality keeps us restless and makes ordinary life in a submission to an actual church seem intolerably confining and terribly ordinary. So there, if you think about the Christian life and the instructions to the Christian life, especially from the New Testament, the most complicated thing that you can do is to bear with me <laughs> and for me to bear with you and to live with you Every single day. That is the call to the church. But we don't feel that. Now, there are people who are called and they have a special mission and their responsibility is, all right, you're going to take the gospel and you're going to go over there and take the gospel. But the majority of Christians are called to the mundane, ordinary, day after day, ministering to the body of believers. So each one of these movements has the focus I think, personally, on the individual. It's an individualized context within the evangelical church. The mission is either evangelism or self-improvement. All of this can be found in Scripture as far as striving for the sake of godliness and evangelism absolutely can be found, but it's not what centralizes the purpose of the church. It's a part of the church, but it's not the purpose of the church. And this is what we are going to focus on over the next several weeks. In closing, real quick, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. And we're going to really exposit chapter 4 in the next few weeks. But I just want to read this one particular verse as we close down this morning. Ephesians 4.16 says this, From whom the whole body... Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
What we don't realize and what has, I think, been lost historically is that the purpose of the church is for the edification of the body. It's for the building up of the body. It's so that you and I, in a world that's crumbling, in a world that is deceitful, in a world that's lying to us, in a world that's full of pain, sorrow, and death, that we come together and our unity strengthens us as we focus in on what? Not the lost. Definitely not on discipleship. And definitely not on world mission. Our focus is on Christ. And from Christ, all of this comes out. Again, don't get me wrong. Evangelism is not wrong. Discipleship is not wrong. It's not either or. World missions is not wrong. But if we lose the focus of the church and the purpose of the church, then we become imbalanced. And in doing so, I think we damage not only the mission of the church and the purpose of the church, but we as individuals become damaged and we feel the weight of that. So everything we do here at CBC is done with a purpose and it's centered around the purpose of the church, what I think is biblically, the biblical purpose of the church. I'm just going to run through these. This is what we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. But I believe that the purpose of the church is for the growth and the health of the believer so they can perform the duties that are required. That's the purpose of the church. There's a lot of requirements for the believer. But it's never the requirement for salvation. It's never the requirement to maintain salvation. And it's never the requirement for acceptability of God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Think about this. That means your obedience or the lack thereof, your holiness or the lack thereof, will not move you closer or farther away to God's love. Right? Then you have to ask the question, why do I obey? It's not for this relationship. The obedience is for this relationship. So we come together and we receive the gospel and the gospel is what we depend on. We depend on Christ. And as we depend on him, guess what happens? I'm standing next to another filthy, dirty sinner who is in need of encouragement. And my dependence upon Christ is required, according to Ephesians, is required to be standing next to you because we work and function together as a body. So as we encourage and strengthen each other through being patient and kind and loving and forgiving and forbearing and confronting and being accountable to each other, that strength is what gives us the ability to then go out into the world. But the purpose of the church is for the strengthening of our faith and the growth of the believer. So therefore, depending on Christ as we feed on him, this is the preaching of the word and the table, and we pray. We pray because we depend on Christ. And then there's the strengthening of our faith, which is the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And then the motivation to share the gospel. We absolutely need to share the gospel, but where does that motivation come from? Well, in one context, it's they're all going to die and go to hell unless we step in. Well, that makes us sovereign. And in another context, you have um, (laughs) the, the primary purpose of the entire church is we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Again, motivation is fear and guilt. But if you understand the primary motivation of the gospel is that unless we proclaim Christ and the power of the gospel transforms their eyes, so it's not how motivated I am to preach the gospel, it's how much do I trust in the message of the gospel. If you gained anything from John 10 and 9 is that you do not have the capacity to bring someone to to faith in Christ. It's not your responsibility to take them from death to life. What is your responsibility? 
to faithfully minister the gospel in every context you find yourself in. But if you're driven by fear and guilt, fear and guilt eventually go away. But if you're driven by joy and love, have you ever been around somebody who just absolutely loves something? It's pretty obvious because they can't stop talking about it. It's displayed, you know, if someone who's like a, a dog lover, it's like, oh yeah, I know you love dogs because I see it on your phone, I see it on your wrist, I see it on your car, and I've heard about your three dogs more than I care to hear about them, right? Well, if our motivation comes from the gospel, then it will come out of us and it will bleed out of us. So the gospel is to be comforted amongst us and then it's to be an exhortation for us so that we can then take it out to those around us. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks as well. Well, I'm really excited about this church and the reason I'm excited about it is that I desperately am dependent upon you most contexts, church uh, pastors find themselves isolated and alone because they're put on a pedestal that they are the kind of the chief example of what a Christian should be. And they are the lead radical. They are the lead disciple. Well, I am not the lead radical. I am not the lead disciple. I am but a humble beggar who lives among you as a sheep who receives Christ in the same way that you do, I have no superpowers, spiritually speaking. I would love the fact that the Spirit would give me a little bit more than he gives you, but I don't. I depend on him the same way you do. I receive Christ the same way you do, and I grow in Christ the same way that you do. There is no difference between you and me. So I'm not speaking down to you. I'm climbing into the family together saying, hey, let's make sure we understand what the purpose and the focus of what we are doing. I promise you there's hope and strength here. So I am excited about the next four weeks to really unpack from the New Testament the focus of the church. To clarify, I'll say this in 30 seconds and then we will move to the reason why we're here, which is feasting on Christ. I will say this. You come today to embrace Christ for the purpose of being strengthened in your faith and to strengthen one another. The difference between this group of people and the people that you will encounter at Costco is that you pay for a membership to receive benefits there. And when those membership, that benefit no longer helps you, guess what you do? You move to Sam's Club, right? What's different here is that this is not some membership that you come to receive benefit from. You are a part of a supernatural body that supernaturally transforms you into the image of Christ and supernaturally helps you feed on Christ. Oh, that's very different than the purposes that have been given to us historically. And going back to a traditional historic church is something I think is so precious that we must, must focus in on it. And I know that we will be transformed for it. Father, we thank you that in... Men.